theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated in the loving memory of Rabbi Nachum Elazar ben Rabbi Yosef in honor of the third yard site and in the loving honor of Rabbi David Avram Yitzchak ben Rachel Fruma in tribute to his 37th birthday. Many, many long, happy, healthy, prosperous years overflowing with blessings. For you, for your family, for your community, for all of the Jewish people, for the entire world. Amen. Today's class is going to be focused on one element of the Megillah in Purim, the Megillah that we read on Purim. And we're going to be using as a text a discourse, a Hasidic discourse known as a Maimer by the Baal Hatanya, the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, was born in 1745. He passed away in the year 1812. He was one of the great disciples and students of the Magad of Mizrich, Rabbi Nudayv Ber, who was the successor of the Balshamtav, who passed away in 1760 and was the founder of the Hasidic movement, his successor of the Magad passed away 12 years later in 1772. And that's when various branches of Hasidic schools branched out, all from the students of the Magad of Mizrich. One of them was Rabbi Shnei Zaman of Liadi, who founded the famous school of Chabad, Hasidus Chabad. And as I said, he lived until 1812. He lived in Liazhna, a little town in Belarus, near Lithuania, and then he moved to Liadi, and then he escaped Napoleonic Wars, and he passed away in the winter, at the end of 1812, in a little place called Piena in the Ukraine, and he was buried in Hadich. This is a discourse of his from Purim. It was set on Purim in the year Tovkov Samachhe, which would be 1805. It's printed in the Maimari Admurazak in the set of uh, discourses of the Alter Rebbe. <coughs> this is Maimari Admurazak in Tovkov Samachhe, volume one. That's 1805. And this is a Maimer on Purim, page Shin Sadik Zayan, 397. It's relatively a short discourse. It does employ a lot of Kabbalistic and mystical language, so it's very easy. If you're not familiar with the terms, you may easily get confused. But I encourage you to stay tuned because we will try to decode and demythologize the abstractions, at least somewhat, to the best of my ability, so that we can really be able to appreciate the profound and relevant and powerful message that this discourse teaches us about Purim. So let's begin. Again, if you didn't download your source sheets yet, go to theyeshiva.net, and over there you'll see on top the class, women's class on Tuesday, and over there you can download or view the source sheets below the video, on top of the video there are icons. One is download and one is View source sheets, depends if you want to print it out, you want to have it on your computer, you just want to put it on your screen, that will be your reference. Let's begin right away. Lahavin Hatam says the Baal HaTanya, the author of the Tanya, the Shulchan Aruch Harav, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, this is how he begins. Lahavin Hatam, Shalei Nisker Shem Havaya Bechol Megillus Esther. To understand that unique phenomenon that the entire book of Esther, the entire scroll of Esther, which we read on Purim, one of the 24 books of the Tanakh, of the Hebrew Bible, does not mention once the name of Hashem. 
You know, there are different names that we employ to describe God. The most famous one is Yutke Vavke. But there are many other names, like the name of Elohim, which is the opening of the Torah. Bereshis bara Elohim, Elohim created heaven and earth. There's another very one that's used frequently, Alav Dalad Nun Yud, Adna, Adoshem. Like Baruch Atah, Hashem, we say Alav Dalad Nun Yud. So when we make a blessing, it's spelled out actually Yud and He and Vav and He, but we pronounce it as Adna. Sometimes it's actually spelled as Alav Dalad Nun Yud. So it's not only that the Megillah doesn't have Hashem's name Yud Kevavke, Yud, the Tetragrammaton as it's called, doesn't have any name, not Elohim, not Alav Dalad Nun Yud. Now you might say, You may answer that the book of Esther is a unique book in the Tanakh because the Gemara says in Meseches Megillah, Esther Seif Kol that basically the era of Esther happened at the, towards the end of the period of the Babylonian exile, which lasted for 70 years after the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, destroyed the first temple, according to uh, secular history records, it would be 586 BCE, 586 before the Common Era. In the Jewish calendar, the date is given, Gimel Alafim Shin Lamed Ches. It's easy to remember because it's Shalach, Shilach. He expelled us. He sent us away. That's 3,338 since creation. 3338 since creation. That's when the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash happens. The Jews go into Babylonian exile and they're there for 70 years. They come back and they will rebuild the second Beis HaMikdash, which will last for 420 years until its destruction in the year 70 after the Common Era by the Romans. The first one is destroyed by the Babylonians, the second one by the Romans. The Megillah, all of the books of the Tanakh, all of them, are located in Eretz Yisrael. They happen in, in the land of Eretz Yisrael. Even the first five books of Moses, they are on the journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. They're developing as a nation and going into the Promised Land. And all the other books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings 1, Kings 2, etc., they are all stories, history, prophecies, inspiration, of those years when the Jewish people are in Eretz Yisrael. We'll soon see the few exceptions. Megillus Esther is a book that takes place in the Persian Empire. It's happening in Iran. It's happening after the destruction of the first Beis Hamidosh. It's happening in exile. It's happening in the diaspora. It's happening outside of the land of Israel. And the Jews are under a foreign authority. They're under the ruler. The, the, the monarch is Achashverosh, the Persian king. So perhaps that's why God's name is not mentioned there. Because Purim happens at the end. It's also the last era of prophecy. The Gemara says that Esther serves Mananavua. This is the last era of prophecy. Afterwards, there will not be prophecy any longer. And as a result, perhaps, that's why Hashem's name is not mentioned there. He says it's the end of the miracles. Of that, There were certain types of miracles that come to an end. The biblical miracles come to an end at that era. And the same is true biblical prophecy. It's a time of exile. They're in Babylonia. It's the last prophets. The, the Alter Rebbe says, good answer. But Halegam Yecheskel Nisnabi Bizman Hagalos. Yecheskel Ezekiel also prophesies in the times of exile. That's how he opens up his book. Ani I am in the exile. True, he began his prophecies in Eretz Yisrael. But most of his prophecies are happening in exile. Yecheskel was exiled to Babylonia with the other Jews. The 
There are other works of the Tanakh that come from this era. The last prophets and all their stories and all their miracles. And they lived in the time of Mardachai and Esther. And you'll see Hashem's name is frequented, frequented, frequently mentioned in their books. For example, take the, say, the book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra, Chagai, Scharia, Malachi. These are all books of the 24 books of Tanakh. And these are the last prophets. They lived in the same era of Mardachai and Esther. You had the prophet Chagai, you had the prophet Schar, you had the prophet Malachi. Malachi is actually considered the last prophet, and his book is the last of the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible. You have Nehemiah and Ezra, who came back from Babylonia, back to the Holy Land, to rebuild the Jewish community and create a Jewish renaissance and rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. Their stories, the episodes and narratives during their life are recorded in the Tanakh, and Hashem's name is frequently mentioned in them. There's one exception, Megillus Esther. And it's the only book in the Tanakh that doesn't have mention, God's name mentioned there. There is one more book that comes close to it, and it's Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is, of course, that powerful story of love and affection between Anila, Doidi, Vidoidi, Li, the lover and the one who is beloved. And even there you will have God's name mentioned at the end once, at the end of Shir Hashirim, chapter 8, Rishafeha, Rishvei, Eish, Shalheves, Yud, her glow is a fiery glow, the glow, the fire, the passion of God. Once at the end. Esther, in contrast, is the only book in the Tanakh. You don't even have one time God's name mentioned. And it's, 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 it comes close to the absurd. Because it's a book of the Tanakh, it's a book of Torah. In fact, the entire book is about God. And His providence in running the world, his providence towards the Jewish people. Everything there is orchestrated by the creator of the world. But in the entire Tanakh, Hashem's name is mentioned because this is the divine blueprint for life. That's the genre of Torah, that's the genre of Tanakh, in one form or another form. Megillus Esther, it's fascinating. Not only during the decree is his name not mentioned, even after the miracle and the salvation, the Jewish people are experiencing light and delight and festivities. Nowhere does it say once that they said thank you to God, that they, they appreciated God. There was gratitude to Hashem. Esther told Mordechai, gather all the Jews, and I want them to fast. In other words, she's mentioning the concept of prayer and beseeching the Almighty, but nothing explicit. She'll never say, pray to God, ask God. Mordechai never tells her, God will help you fulfill this mission. His name is not mentioned even once in no form or fashion. What is the meaning of this? Now you can't answer again. This is exile, it's not an Eretz Yisrael. There are other books that are capturing that era of the Jewish people and nonetheless they have God's name mentioned. Let's see the explanation that the Alter Rebbe gives us for this phenomenon. The answer to this will be understood. I'll be Hakdamas, Maimir Hazoya, Soif Parshas Bechukoisai, Daft Kuftas Vavamid Beis. I'll Pasak Loima Astim, Veloiga Altim, Lechaloisam. This will be understood by introducing a statement of the Zoyhar. The Zoyhar, one of the earliest and greatest Kabbalistic works, is a commentary on Chumash. And on Parshas Bechukoisai, the Zoyhar tells something. The Zohar says, the Pasuk says over there, Parshas B'chukaisei, the end of Leviticus, includes what's known as the Teichicha, powerful words of rebuke that Hashem communicates to the Jewish people through Moshe Rabbeinu, telling them the rewards and the benefits they will reap if they hold on to the covenant 
and they fulfill their duty as God's people. And conversely, heaven forbid, if they neglect the covenant and they abandon the relationship, the dire consequences and cataclysmic effects, both in the positive and in the negative. At the end of it all, after he says, if you abandon the covenant, you will ultimately be dispersed around the world, you'll go into exile, God makes a promise. And I quote, Translation, even when they will be in the lands of their enemies, in the hands of their oppressors, I will never become disgusted with them. I will never become repulsed by them. To wipe them out. And annul the covenant I created with them. I am forever their God. Really, really beautiful Pasuk. In other words, under no circumstances, even difficult and challenging circumstances, must you ever feel abandoned. Never think, God is saying, that I have forgotten you, that I'm not still connected to you. So Rebbe Lezer, is talking to another great Talmudic sage, Reb Chia, sorry, Reb Chia, in Zohar there, is addressing and teaching another great Talmudic sage, Reb Yossi. And he says to him, I want, I tells him, I want to give you an interpretation that I heard from Reb Lazar on this verse. There is a strange reality in that verse, actually a strange, mis, apparent misspelling, Lechaloisam should have been spelled Lamed Chaf, Lamed Vav, Saf Mem. I will never destroy them. It's spelled without a Vav, and therefore it could be read Lechalosam, because they are the Kala, they are the bride, which is very strange. So Reb Chia gave the following interpretation to Reb Yossi. He says, Umevur Shami explains them a Indian marshal base a metaphor of somebody who's working in a bursaki that is a tanning factory. Where they're tanning, they basically take the hides of animals, the skins of animals, and they develop it into leather and into four. Everybody knows that the smell in these places is difficult to be around. It's a horrible, noxious fumes. It's, it's repulsive fumes. There's only one issue. There's a groom... And his bride happens to be in a bursiki. She happens to be in one of these places. He himself, says Desire, would never ever frequent such a place. He's an aristocrat. He's royal. He's sensitive. He loves being in beautiful places with beautiful smells. He doesn't hang out in these places, tanneries. The prab, the challenge is his bride is there. Says Desire, because of the tremendous love of the groom, he will go and sleep and dwell in the home of his spouse, of his bride, even though she is living in a space that is, to put it simply, to put it simply unkempt, disorganized, chaotic. It's a place that seems like it's made for, for the homeless, unfortunately. For people who can't afford a better place, the smells are horrible. This man is affluent. He's wealthy. 
but his kala is there. So he's going to go and stay there and live there. And the Zoya continues. And for him, it smells like he's in a garden. Or he's in a store with the most uh, perfect perfumes. Where the smell is intoxicating and delicious and exquisite and geschmack and delightful. That's what the Zoya says. Like a chanus psamim. With the most, the, 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 the most delicious and delightful incense or various spices and herbs that generate such a delicious and exquisite aroma, that's what it smells like. But it doesn't make sense. It doesn't smell that way. Of course, the expression in Hebrew, don't debate people on smell and on taste. The fact is because his kala is there. And the fact that she is there, and he is so connected to her. There is so much love. So just being with her, with her is the most delicious experiences. It eclipses all the negativity. It eclipses all the undesirable qualities that come with it. Not only does it eclipse it, it transforms it. Because he's with somebody that he loves so much. Says the Zohar, Even when the Jews are in the land of their enemies, which as we will see doesn't only mean physically, but it may mean spiritually they are sometimes taken over by their own toxicity, by their own inner enemy. We all have an inner foe. I will never see them as repulsive. I will never become repulsed or disgusted. I will not You know why? Because they are the bride. They are my kala. They are my kala. I've made a covenant with them. So therefore, they may be in a place that seems very repulsive. There's a lot of filth there. There's a lot of dirt. And we'll soon see we're not referring here only to physical filth or dirt. We're referring here, we're referring here to moral filth. We're referring here to spiritual filth. To psychological toxicity. I shouldn't be here. God said, I don't belong here. But my kala is here. My bride is here. So therefore I go there and that becomes my home and that's where I dwell and that's where I hang out and that's where I celebrate life because she's there. And Rabbi Yossi tells Rabbi Chia, if I came here only to hear this insight it would have been enough. And Yiddish and the pressure it would have been worth it just to come here to be able to hear this insight, this perspective from you. That's the story in the Zoya Parshas B'chakaisa that the Altar Rebbe the Balatanya is referring to. And now he begins to explain it. As I said, he's going to employ mystical, Kabbalistic terminology here. But the message will become clear as he goes on with the Maim. Ubir Hadavar, who to explain this, L'fisha Bizman Hagolos Ha'ava Ha'elyoyna Tepchines Ze'er Ampindat Silos Shenikrechosen Hibi Yeser Se'eis Harbe El Hakala just to explain the terms, I'm not going to elaborate on these terms because it's not so, it's relevant, but it's not going to be our focus today. In Kabbalah and in Hasidic texts, mystical Jewish texts, there's a concept called Ze'er Ampin means the small face of Atzillus, or in simple language, it's referring to God's divine emotional characteristics. There's something called Malchus of Atzillus. Malchus of Atzillus is the feminine counterpart. You have like the king and you have the queen. 
Malchus Datzilus is the Malka, the queen of Atzilus, which refers to Knesset Yisrael, the collective souls of Israel in their source, which are, so to speak, God's spouse. So the Alter Rebbe says, Zah is called the Chassan, the groom. Malchus is called the bride. Malchus of Atzilus is called the bride. He says, in the time of exile, the love that the groom, the divine groom, has to his counterpart, to his soulmate, to his bride, is much more profound and much more powerful and intense. But it's exile. Malchus, the queen, has departed from the palace. She is now concealed. She has become distant. I'm translating his words. In fact, she has become manifest in, in what's known as the Ayin Sarim, the 70 spiritual forces that are the spiritual counterparts and the guardian angels of the 70 nations of the world. They're called the Ayin Sarim. This is the Golos HaShchina. The Shechina went into exile. Says the Because there is such profound distance, remoteness between the groom and the bride, Tigdal Ha'ava B'Yesser Se'es. So the love only increases. Because perpetual, consistent pleasure is not so pleasurable. You can't compare it to the pleasure that is experienced in the love that happens at unique occasions. And one occasion is distant from another occasion. The fact is that when we are with somebody that we love all the time, we often take them for granted. When we are doing something that we love, even though we love it and it grants us pleasure, but tainuk tmidi ene tainuk. Very profound insight. Consistent pleasure, we don't appreciate. We take it for granted. When something is, God forbid, taken away from somebody, ooh, then they realize how much they miss it. They long for it. And suddenly all the love is triggered. We wake up in the morning, the fact that I woke up this morning and my eyesight is working, I can see. I take it for granted. I saw yesterday, I see today. Should we take it for granted? The pleasure of life because you have the ability to see? (laughs) Helen Keller once said, the only thing that's worse than not having, she was the right person to say it. Helen Keller said, the only thing that's worse than not having eyesight is lacking vision. That's why when we wake up in the morning, we make a special blessing. Baruch atah Hashem alakeinu malachaylam poikeyach ivrim. We thank God for opening the eyes of the blind. Every person is blind. It's a miracle that you could see. You know what has to happen? You know how many sensors there are in the eye that try to replicate the eye on jets, combat jets, thousands of cameras, and it pales in comparison to the mechanism of the eye. So we thank God that he opens up our eyes. When I'm sleeping, my eyes are closed, and then my eyes open up. Did I wake up and start dancing? Did I wake up this morning and start dancing that I can walk? What about that my respiratory system is functioning? My urinary system is functioning. My circulatory system is functioning. God forbid when a person is struggling to breathe, and we should wish everyone who has the coronavirus to have a complete and speedy recovery. When somebody is struggling to breathe, when inhaling the oxygen is not a simple task, every breath takes tremendous effort. And then finally, you recover, you heal. Ah, it's a different pleasure. So this is the principle the Alter Rebbe is saying, a consistent pleasure we take for granted. 
So therefore, when you're with somebody you love, and you're together, and there's a good relationship, and there is affection between you, it's amazing, it's incredible. But it's easy for the love not to be so noticed, not to be manifested. We move on. When there is distance, distance doesn't only mean physically, geographically, that too. When there is distance, suddenly you remember what you miss. You remember who you miss. Famous expression in Tanakh, if it's a very sad expression. Jonathan tells David, you will be remembered because your seat will be absent. It's one of the sad ironies of life. Sometimes we do not remember people until they're not there anymore. When they're there, we don't remember them. We take them for granted. We look the other way. They're always supposed to be there. But when they're absent, when they're not there anymore, suddenly you think about them. That's when you start seeing them. Isn't that the irony of life, the tragedy of life? Sometimes when you're here, I don't see you. When you're not here, do I start seeing you? I notice you. I think about you. In many ways, you become more present in my life. It shouldn't be that way, but this is how life is. You'll be remembered because your seat is absent. There's the geographical distance. A spouse travels far away. Your child travels far away. You realize how much you miss them. I once read an article... A woman wrote how she was, always, she was always craving to come home at night to a clean, organized home. But thank God she had many kids and the kids were growing up and they knew how to make a mess. And you don't even have many, you don't have to have many kids for that. And all night she was basically cleaning and trying to keep the home tidy. And she was always longing for that time in her life, you know, when she would be able to leave the home, go to work and then come home in the evening and the home will be perfect because nobody was there, nobody touched it. And then, of course, she marries off her children. They leave the home. They leave the nest. The nest is empty. And all she's thinking about is when they're going to come back to visit. But often when we're in the thicket of something, we can't really appreciate the power of it. It's the distance, geographically, but also emotionally. Sometimes when we get into a dispute, you get into a dispute with somebody you love. There was confrontation, there was a little negative energy, there was a misunderstanding. Maybe you said or you did something wrong, or conversely. And then we realize the emptiness, the void, it's not supposed to be this way, the dysfunction. The tragedy is when you become make peace with the dysfunction. I make peace with the void, and the alienation is maintained. But when there's a very powerful relationship, it's that distance that brings out a much more powerful affection. That is what Alter Rebbe is saying here. Vahanim shall move on. This is the metaphor between a groom and a bride. What's the relationship? How is this expressed with God? Chabizman Beisamikdash. In the time of the Beisamikdash, Lafi Shaya Yechot Shalem Leitim Kravis Alderich Marshal. Since the unity, the intimacy between God and the Jewish people was frequent, metaphorically speaking, they were together very often. The love does not come out in such a powerful, intense way, with so much electricity and nuclear energy, if you will, as in the time of exile, when the Shechina goes in to exile. And this has been explained elsewhere in more length, and it will be sufficient to the one who understands. Somebody who doesn't understand, he's saying, I can elaborate more, you won't get it. And if you got it, you got it. 
because the love is so powerful. I miss you. I long for you. I want to be with you. And you're not, we're not together. Ah, what this causes is that the, the, the groom, the chasen, God, will descend to the space of the bride, even if for him this is shameful. Under natural circumstances, this is unbecoming for him. This is not a place where he should go to. This is a place that for him seems completely inappropriate to be in. This is a place of bush. It's a place of shame for him. He will also get dressed in her garments. Powerful words. He's going to don her garments. Even though they're alien to him. She has distanced herself from him. She went off, this is obviously metaphorically speaking, she went off to a different location. She's living in a different environment, as the Zayar says, in a tannery. She's wearing different types of clothes. The chassan would never, ever go to such a place. It's embarrassing for him. It's humiliating for him. These are not garments that you will ever catch him dead in. It's completely unbecoming. It's disrespectful for him. Nonetheless, he will get dressed in those garments. And he will dwell with her in her home. Even though it's, 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 it's a lowly place. It's not a place for him. It's a very, very humbling place. Under normal circumstances, he wouldn't step foot in such a home. Never mind, stay in such a home. Make it his dwelling place. Make it his primary residence. What about sometimes you have a home that's unbecoming? It's a place you would never go in there. You can't sleep in such a place. And what if the place is filled with horrible, horrible smells? It's actually disgusting. It's dirty. It's filthy. It's repulsive. Says the Alter Rebbe, the love is so powerful, it becomes irrelevant. He ignores everything. Not because he's naive, not because he doesn't know, but it doesn't, it doesn't occupy space. He's not conscious of it. You know why? Because what he's experiencing is the love, the connection. I want to be with you. And if being with you means that I let go of all my expectations, and I let go of all of my regular desires, and I let go of all my regular sensitivities, and I let go of all of the demeanors and the mannerisms and the fashion in which I present itself, because I want to be connected to you, even though I have to say goodbye to everything I'm used to, everything I'm accustomed to, I'll do it. And not only will I do it, if the love is really there, everything else becomes irrelevant. I barely notice it. I'm not sensitive to it. I'm not experiencing it. Because what is the price of having to deal with all these smells, knowing that it gives me an opportunity to be with you? Conversely, Take me to the most beautiful place in the world. Give me a residence in the most exquisite environment 
with the most beautiful smells, with the most exquisite and beautiful views, but I'm not with you. What are they worth? So everything changes. That which yesterday was so beautiful, today is so irrelevant, so unappealing to me. And that which yesterday was so unappealing, today is so appealing because you're there. Because of the fiery love, because of the pleasure of being with you. And this is really provoked because we have been so distant. This is the metaphor of the tannery that the Zayar talks about. Because when the sages wanted to describe a place that has a horrible smell, this was considered the place with the most worst smell. And you understand why? All the fertilizer, the dung, the animal fertilizer, the animal dung, the chemicals and the substances that they they had to use to develop the skin. You walked in over there and if you were sensitive to smell, this was not a place you would come visit again. That's why the Zoya uses this metaphor. But the Kala is there. The person I am in love with is there. The Hainu, what does this mean? What is the metaphor? Shepchin is chasen ha'alyen, the supernal groom, God. Yoyded lihislabish gambelavushim ha'chitzayna. He is ready to dress up in garments that are unbecoming for him. They are external to him. They're alien to him. In mystical language, these are known as the garments that come from the external dimensions, of the external dimensions, of the vessels, of the world's But this is the key. The supernal bride, God's bride, is dressed up in those garments in the time of exile. Yes, she has fallen. Yes, she is enveloped by garments. She is encompassed by garments that are alien to her core, spiritual, pristine, divine identity. Her posture has been diminished. Her innate sense of dignity has been compromised. Her connection to infinite royalty has been diluted, has been eclipsed, has been concealed. She is now covered by garments, by experiences, by thoughts, by emotions, by temptations, by cravings, by fears, by insecurities, that in a good day you would call toxic, alien. But that's what she's dressed in. This is what exile means. I'm alienated from my own innate divinity. sak. This is what we would call a sackcloth. You can wear a beautiful outfit. I can wear a beautiful suit, a beautiful tie. You can wear a beautiful dress, whatever the person is wearing, and it expresses you. It expresses your personality. It expresses your flavor. It expresses your beauty. What happens if you put on a sackcloth? I'm putting on a sack. What does it do? It represents mourning. Mardechai put on a sackcloth. Why? To express his grief. To express the fact that he feels like he's a dead man walking. He has no taste in life. He has no flavor in life. When he heard about the decree that Haman wants to exterminate the entire Jewish people, he put on a levushtak, he put on a sackcloth. He's wearing dregs, basically. It's not like my, my inner glory and dignity is expressed, expressed through these garments. On the contrary, these garments just cover me up. You can't even see who I am. They're not even tailor-made to suit my body and my physique. 
It's just a sack that you put over you, and you're now luring, you're now you're now dressed up in sackcloth. Spiritually, what does this mean? This means when divine energy is dressed up in the seventy spiritual guardian angels of the world of Asiya, the lowest world, which is the lowest state of consciousness known as the world of Asiya. of the Pasik says, Yeshaya says, I quote the whole Pasik, Albir Shamayim Kadras Vesak Asim Ksusam. Sometimes I will dress up heaven with darkness, with black darkness, and their garment, their cloak will be made of sackcloth. Pirush. What does this mean? Heaven doesn't only refer to physical heaven. It refers to spiritual heaven. It refers to the pristine divine energy known as Za and Nukva. Za and Nukva is the masculine and feminine components of the world of Atsilas, which is the highest state of consciousness. Atsilas comes from the word Eitzel, which means closeness. Eitzel v'samuch. It's a world of complete divine oneness and harmony. That's Shamayim. Okshem eslapshem belavushem hachitzayinim anikra lavush sak oz nemar vesak osem ksusam. And when heaven gets dressed up and gets eclipsed and gets filtered and covered over by external layers and garments which eclipse its true energy and identity, that's called sackcloth. And that's when God says vesak osem ksusam. The cloak for heaven will be a sackcloth, which completely eclipses it, which completely doesn't express it. maven. again, this is enough for somebody who understands. V'cholze, nonetheless, God says, heaven will dress up in, these, in this sackcloth. I will get dressed in this. Because the love simply is infinite. The love knows no bounds. And therefore, I will go into those garments because my kala is there, because my beloved one is there. And I need a relationship with them more than anything else. So if they're dressed up in those garments, I will go into those garments. The Shekhinah itself, Hashem Himself says, Al b'shamayim kadras, I will dress up heaven in these dark clothes, spiritually dark clothes, v'sak asim ksusam. V'alkein yuchaliyos yichudam gambalavur sakana. Because I want intimacy. And if the intimacy can only be done in that garment, that's where it's going to be done. Even when we are in a sackcloth, that's what the, the garment looks like. That's where we're going to be one. That's where we're going to be miyuchad. And this love comes out precisely when there's a distance. When there's no distance, this love doesn't come out. When there's a distance, the love is so powerful and so intense, it causes the chasen to do drastic things to metamorphosize himself, to reinvent himself, to go into places he would never go, to put on garments he would never put on, to tolerate smells and fumes that he would never tolerate. And not only that, they all become delicious. Because my bride is there, my beloved one is there. We'll soon see what this means. This is all, he's using a lot of metaphoric language. We'll soon understand what this means. To explain this more, says the Alter Rebbe, it's known that the world is comprised of four elements. We speak about fire, water, air, and earth. 
Those four elements exist on many different planes, on many different levels. So he says the four elements of the spiritual world of action, which are the source of the pathways of nature, this is a manifestation of the spiritual energy of the 70 spiritual guardian angels that rule the 70 nations of the world. And when God's miracles flow and are manifested through the pathways of nature, similar to the nays of Purim with Achashverish, what does this mean? This means that the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, enclosed itself in these 70 guardian angels of the 70 nations. That's where the Shekhinah is operating in and through. And over there came out in the most powerful way the intimacy, the oneness between Havaya, Hashem Himself, and Elikim, the way he's manifested in nature. Elokim is Aleph Lamed Heyud Mem, is the numerical value of 86, the same numerical value as the word Hateva, the nature. Havayut Kevofke stands as a combination of three words, Hoya, he was, he is, and he will be, which transcends nature. So the unity happens, Achu Behester Vehelam Hagodl, but it's completely concealed. There's no radiance of it. It's not manifested in a bright and luminescent way. Even if it would be manifested in what's known as the ten divine characteristics of the lower world, there would be more light. But here it's not even there. Because the intimacy, the unity happens in a sackcloth. Shuhugas, it's coarse. Va'av, and it's thick. B'ma'oid, excessively. Umaster betachlis ahester. And completely eclipses the intimacy. Kamashul asak hagashmi. Just like a physical sackcloth. Shemailem ha'shebetoichi legamri mikol v'kol. Whatever you put into the sack becomes completely covered over. You don't see it. When a person is wearing a sack, you don't see him. You don't see his or her physique, their face. You can't appreciate their personality, their presence, because they're just in a sack, they're tied up in a sack and the sack completely eclipses them what is the Alter Rebbe telling us here now we'll understand why in the book of Esther you will not mention there is not a mention of Hashem's name no names, not Yudke Vavke not Elohim not alav dalad nun yud, but neisha az hayai slapshus betachlis ahester belevursak hayoyser gas mikol alevursham. Because then the divine presence enclosed himself and allowed himself to be completely concealed in a sackcloth, the most dense and eclipsing garment from any other garment that is conceivable. V'lachen nikra aster Esther aster pana. That's why the book is called Esther. Which comes from the word Hester, the Pasik says, Haster, Aster who my face will be concealed on that day. <clears throat> but the prophecies of the other prophets, Gam even though they lived during that time of especially those who went back to the land of Israel and rebuilt the second base. There was some revelation of godliness that transcended nature, 
that transcended the structures of the 70 nations. Therefore, they have honorable mentions of God's name, and this will be enough for the person who understands. What is the Alter Rebbe telling us here? Let's summarize and bring out the point. If you study the book of Megillus Esther, you see that everything that happened seemed to be absolutely based on nature. There was no supernatural event. It's not like the stories of the exodus of Egypt or even the stories of Hanukkah. The oil burned, could only burn one night and it burned for eight nights. There's no such a story in Purim. There's no splitting of the sea. There's no water turning into blood. There's no death of the firstborn. There's no God coming down on a mountain. There's no Joshua stopping the sun. None of this happens. In fact, if you read the Megillah and you don't know the background, you don't know the higher force of the story, it's not a story in the Tanakh, what type of story would you be reading about? These are all stories that you read in the newspapers. These are all stories you read on the websites. There's a monarch, his name is Achashverosh. He likes to drink. Okay, that's not a miracle. He's an addict. He never went to AA. Okay. He's a womanizer, fine. That's, these are not miracles. <laughs> these are part of uh, human condition and human weakness. He throws parties. He's paranoid. He's insecure. Okay, that's not miracles. We know people who are paranoid and insecure. We all have that a little bit inside. Maybe he's narcissistic. He always wants accolades. He's surrounded. He gets in a fight with his wife. He kills her or at least gets her out of the palace. In the ancient world, that's not strange. He's looking for a new woman. He finds Vashti. He likes Vashti. Okay. And this happens not a few weeks apart. This is years apart. The party started when he became a king in the third year of his reign. Esther became his queen in the seventh year of his reign. So there's a long story happening. And not everybody's connecting the dots. In the Megillah, we connect the dots. People read the Megillah, it takes 25 minutes, and they think the whole thing happened within six months. They don't realize that the thing happened over two decades. Who's connecting the dots? The Megillah is connecting the dots. There's an assassination attempt by Bixen and Seresh that happens to be reported by Mardukha. Okay, another story, they tried to kill him. Also not unusual. Haman, who's a clever minister, manages to rise to the top and become the prime minister. Haman Tachashverosh is what barriers to Stalin. If you go to the yeshiva.net, you can watch my class, the psychological profile of Achashverosh, Haman and Esther, the genius of Esther in understanding the psychology of her husband and therefore creating salvation for her people. And as the story develops, we don't see any miracles. It happens to be that Esther was there in the right place, in the right time, as they say. And her husband, Mordechai, her relative, beseeched her and said, listen, use your influence and get your husband to annul the decree. And that's what she does. She gets him drunk at one party and then gets him drunk at another party. And in her own psychological, brilliant maneuvering that she does, she manages to annul the decree. Beautiful story. But there's no miracle here. What's, where is the miracle here? That Achashverosh killed his first wife? That he got drunk? That Haman became the prime minister? That Esther, he really liked Esther because of her beauty, her grace, her personality, she became the queen? That she used her influence to, uh, to uh, influence her husband's positions and annul the edict? This is what first ladies do, they use their influence. Comes the Alter Rebbe and says, but it was all a miracle. It was all a miracle. From beginning to end, it was God moving the chess pieces to save the Jewish people. But it was concealed within the mechanisms of nature. What does this mean in spiritual language? Hashem put on the garments of exile. 
He put on the garments of his, of his spouse. He put on the garments of the sack. Sometimes you have miracles that are completely defiant of nature. Sometimes you have miracles that point to something extraordinary. And sometimes you have miracles that seem like just day-to-day random occurrences, but they all produce a lovely, a, a lovely decisive victory for goodness and a defeat for injustice and evil and abuse and genocide. The ness of Purim is completely, completely eclipsed by natural occurrences. In fact, one can argue, where is there God? I don't see God here. I see wise, clever Jews. Esther was smart. Mordechai was smart. Good luck. I see good luck that there was a Jewish queen there. Maybe if there was another queen, we could have never done this. I got it. But I don't see a ness here. Comes down to Rebbe and says, that's exactly the point. Hashem, Hashem, heaven, expressed himself, not through expressing himself, because the Jewish people were in exile, which means the divine energy that's expressed by Knesset Yisrael, by the Jewish souls, Malchus Datsilas, is enclosed in a world that seems separated from the oneness of Hashem. It's a world in which things seem independent and random. That's where they went into. And it looks like who calls the shots? Achashverosh calls the shots. Haman calls the shots. The monarchy of the Persian Empire was the one that ultimately was dictating what's happening. That's on a superficial level. On a deeper level, what does the Megillus Esther tell you? That in those garments of absolute nature, where you saw no revelation at all of a godliness that transcended nature, what was really happening was it was the yichud of Havayev Elikim of Einoid Mulvada. Atta Reisaladaski Hashemu Elikim Einoid Mulvada. Havayev and Elikim, the God and the Knesset Israel were tight, were so one, even though it was a time of concealment. Hanoichi Aster Aster Panai Bayaimahu. My face is concealed, you don't see my face. Because I'm ready to come into your space. And if you're in exile, I'm also going into exile. And if I'm in exile, you're not going to see me. And if you're wearing a sack, I'll also wear a sack. But over there, they were one. And Hashem was calling the shots. And Hashem was expressing His influence and His love and His energy. Even though you don't see Him at all. And that's why there's no name of Hashem in the whole Megillah. Other events, even of that time, there was some radiance of a higher consciousness, of a higher reality here. It seemed like it's all a story about Achashverosh. When the story ended, Achashverosh took the credit himself. I did it. Nothing seemed to change. But internally, it was all a divine story. Internally, it was all one big miracle. The way it's manifested and eclipsed through nature. Spiritually, what does this mean? When the Jewish people go into exile, it means they're going into a space in which their pristine oneness and inner divinity is covered up. Sometimes we go into that place. I'm wearing a sack. In other words, I'm wearing a sack internally. I'm not expressed. I don't know who I am. Comes Hashem and says, I'm coming with you. I'm there with you inside there. I'm going to be there because you're there. I, I have to conceal myself. I'll conceal myself because you're there. And the love will always be present. And al Rebbe continues, V'amnam b'zois milus megillus esther in this sense, Megillus Esther is greater than all the other books of Tanakh. 
Megillus Esther is the only book that's compared, it's the same spiritual level, like the five books, like the Torah Shabbat, like the five books of Chumash Achalei Tibatalei The Rambam says at the end of Hilchis Megillah, the laws of Purim, that all of the holidays and all of the books of the prophets are going to be nullified or obliterated or at least not seen as significant in the future. Besides, Chumash and Megillus Esther. Megillus Esther will never be nullified, and Purim will never be nullified. We say in the Megillah that the celebration of Purim will never, ever, ever stop. In the future redemption, the revelation is going to be so powerful that the previous holidays are going to be eclipsed. It's going to be like lighting a candle in the middle of the day. And the books of the Nevi'im, even though they're holy and sacred, they're not going to occupy significance. The exception is the holiday of Purim will be celebrated for eternity even after Mashiach and celebrated with gusto and passion, not just lighting a candle in the middle of the day. It will occupy tremendous significance. And the book of Esther will. Why? Because of this reason. Because that's where you saw and you see the deepest relationship, the deepest connection. You know where you see real love? When the two people are so connected that one is ready to get dressed in garments that are completely alien to him. It's in this moment when the one who loves is ready to go through such a transformation and get dressed up in garments that are completely unbecoming of him or her and enter into a mode that is so alien to their innate reality because I want to hold on to you. Because I value our connection more than anything else in the world. He says, that's where you see the love. And in that sense, the celebration there is deeper than any other celebration. That's where you see that this unity is not just, okay, let's be together. But this unity is driven by infinite, limitless, boundless love that you will not find in the greatest alias of the world. Even in the greatest alias, when people are ascending and going up and they're spiritually lofty and sublime, you won't see the love there. It's in this moment of Purim Megillus Esther that the greatest intimacy between Hashem and you come out. That there's nothing, nothing, no toxicity, no behavior that can eclipse that can cause a distance. And if God says, but they're, they're not living in the palace anymore, they're in a different place. Okay, so I'm going to leave my place. I'm going to go into their space. I'm going to dress up like them. Speak that language. Communicate in that level. That's Megillus Esther. It's all God. It's all God. But God is speaking a different language. He's speaking the language of the Persian. Fascinating. He's speaking the language of the Persian monarch. He's speaking a different language. He's wearing different clothes. It's all Hashem. Achashverosh is not running the show. Vashti is not running the show. Haman is not running the show. Bixen is not running the show. Serge is not. Mordechai and Esther are not running the show, and they know they're not running the show. That's the difference. Hashem is running the show. So why is his name not mentioned? That's exactly the point. I don't need to mention my name. I'm running the show, but I'm wearing their clothes and speaking their language and dressed up in their garments, and following their routines. But I'm there. Esther, 
What's the source of Esther and Torah? I will conceal my face, says the Baal Shem Tov. I'll conceal my face, but I'm anoichi, I'm still there. And says the Alter Rebbe, he's not just oh so there. He's even there. No, over there, you see how close he is more than anywhere else. Because he'll forfeit everything else just to be with you. So when the Jewish people go into Gullus, when a person goes into exile, not just geographically, spiritually and emotionally, you go into a difficult place, you fall, you surrender to addiction, you, you lose your dignity, you don't know who you are anymore, you're wearing a sack, I'm wearing a sack, I'm wearing a sack inside, I don't recognize myself, my true godliness is concealed. Hashem says, I'll never, ever detach from you. I'm going to come be there with you. And even if that means that I'm going to be wearing a sack and nobody will recognize me, that's fine. And we're going to have oneness over there. We're going to be intimate. Yichud We're going to be one. And even though my name will not be mentioned, not Havaya, not Alekim, not Adna, because the divine energy is completely enclosed and eclipsed and manifested by the forces of externalities that eclipse the divine energy. That's what he keeps on saying, the ayin sarim, noiga, chitzonius, etc. So there's no light whatsoever. God became the Persian palace. He says, yeah, that's who I became. Not because, I re- not because he really became that. Because he will not give up on his kala. He will not give up on Esther Hamalka. And Esther Hamalka represents Knesset Yisrael in a state of concealment. And that's why you'll see in Medrashim it says, Achashverish is a metaphor for Hashem. Achar is Veresh, is Shaloi. It's a combination of three words. The end and the beginning is his. Chazal say when it says Hamelech, it's also referring to the king of the world. Come on. Achashverish is a Persian monarch, a drunk, an inebriated king. What are you comparing to Hashem? That's the whole point of Megillah Esther. God doesn't only appear from heaven in heavenly ways. Sometimes heaven dresses up in sackcloth, in Achashverosh. But the Pnimi is the core of Achashverosh is Achriz Veresh Shaloi. So, what does this mean in a person's life and in our own relationships? What does this mean? It means that Purim teaches us that love sometimes requires for me to strip myself from everything I know about me. There's things I'm comfortable with. There's things that are appealing to me. There's things that make sense to me. There are places I go to, there are places I will never go to. Sepasnash. There's clothes I will never put on. They're just not becoming of me. There are smells I cannot deal with. And yet when I know that my child, or my brother, or my sister or my spouse, or my bride, or my groom, or my friend is in those places, I will become the person that I did not recognize. Not because I'm insecure, but because I'm very secure, because I'm confident, because I know that the most important thing is for me to be there with them. The most important thing is for them not to be alone, for them not to, be, not to feel that they're not attached, for them not to feel disconnected. For them to know that there's somebody there with them. But I say, me, I don't belong there. Hashem says, I'm God. I'm not a peasant. Ich bin Aid. Jesus says, I'm a person. I have dignity. 
I'm an aristocrat. It's not how a king dresses. It's not how a queen dresses. But they're in the lands of their enemies. They're abducted by their enemy. They're in exile. They're alienated from themselves. I can wait till they come out, but I may lose them. So therefore, even when they're in the lands of their enemies, again, we're referring to, referring to spiritually, emotionally. I will go in there and I will not be disgusted. I will not be repulsed. I won't go, Ehh. even though there's a part of me that says, get me out of this place. But my kala is there. My kala is there. And you know what? This becomes the most beautiful place. Desire says, ah, the smells are amazing. Not because the smells are amazing, because the smell of one person is amazing. The smell of love is amazing. The smell of oneness is amazing. And that smell is deeper than every other smell. So therefore God says, you won't mention my name. Nobody knows I'm here. doesn't look like me. I know. I don't look like God now. I look like, I look like the Persian monarch. But it's all me. I'm there. I'm there with my essence. I'm there with my presence. Because of my love to you. This book will never ever be nullified in the Jewish consciousness. This holiday will never pass the Jewish imagination. Because this relationship, this connection, is the secret of everything. It's the ultimate equation of all. So how can Purim ever be nullified? Have a happy Purim. Let's take some questions. Question number one. I understand the metaphor of the Zayar as it pertains to Megillus Esther and as a metaphor for the exile experience in general. But wouldn't the ultimate act of love be for the groom to enter the tannery and not to conceal himself in sackcloth and subsequently pull her out of that terrible place instead of joining her in her reality? Excellent question. Excellent question, Ebitzendina. But that's all if the bride wants to leave the tannery. What if I don't want to leave the tannery? What if I don't recognize myself as a divine bride? What if I'm enveloped by thoughts and by experiences and by temptations and by toxicity and by addiction and by self-loathing and by self-shame? What if my posture is not connected to my true infinite self? That's what it means. I went into Gullus. So the question is, does the groom say, hey, when you come back to the palace, send me a text. <laughs> when you come back, send me a text. I'm going to go in there and help you. Of course the point is to get her out of the tannery. Of course the point is to get her out of the tannery. But how do I get her out of the tannery? How? I can't sit in the ivory tower and say, hey, you there, come out. They're not there anymore. They're not connected to me. That's the point. Maybe let's make this clear. The kala, golos means that the kala is not connected to the chasm. It's like a relationship that went sour. We used to be close, but now we're alienated from each other. I see myself in a different way. What does this mean in my own life? What does it mean I'm in exile? I'm alienated from my true innermost yearnings. Isn't that the basic definition of trauma? You knew that I had to mention that word, right? Isn't that the basic definition of trauma? What is trauma if not a self-restricted, a very restricted version of self? 
Everything is filtered through my trauma. Everything is experienced through my trauma. I don't know what my longings are. I don't even know my yearnings. Somebody told me yesterday, this fellow, tremendous, tremendous, great marriage, amazing spouse. And he said, my spouse, my wife, is an ocean of love. But I could never, ever accept it or hear it or absorb it because of my trauma. So every time she said something to me, it was filtered through my trauma. And I thought she's harassing me, she's embarrassing me, she's spreading... Imagine. That means he's in exile. He's dressed up in a sack. He doesn't know who he is anymore. He sees himself through the sackcloth. In other words, he doesn't see himself. He creates a substitute person. It's a pseudo-personality. He's a dead man walking. His His inner soul is completely eclipsed. What is it eclipsed by? It's dressed up in garments that instead of channeling and reveal his dignity, they eclipse his dignity. So God says, I'm not leaving you. I'm going to come in. I'm going to go in there. There's a beautiful metaphor of Reb Nachman of Breslov. You know the metaphor? Reb Nachman of Breslov says that there was a prince who sadly decided that he was a rooster. And he took off his clothes and he sat nakedly under the table, only eating chicken food, not saying a word. And the doctor called, the, the, the king called every physician, every doctor, every psychiatrist, every healer in his entire meluch in his entire empire, but to no avail. Until there was one wise man and he told the king, I'll take care of it. And he removed his clothes and he went under the table. And the prince looks at him and says, what are you doing here? He says, I'm also a rooster. And they bonded. And then one day, he started to speak human language. He says, what are you doing? He says, some roosters can communicate in a human way. And then the next day, he put on a shirt. He says, what are you doing? He says, some roosters get dressed. And then he starts eating with a fork and a knife, because roosters do that too. And then he goes to the bathroom, because roosters, some roosters do that as well. That was the story of Reb Nachum. What was he trying to bring out? He was trying to bring out, if I'm not ready to go under the table and be there with you in your space, just to understand what you're going through, I won't be able to get you out from under the table. And that's what the Megillah is. That's the love that the Megillah brings out. And that love is forever there. Even when Mashiach comes, we're going to remember that love because that's where we saw the love. That's where you see the connection. Isn't the key that the two, is that why Mardukai put on a sackcloth? That's a good explanation. Isn't the key that the two, this, these two people save the, the act of wearing a sackcloth and living as an unfamiliar people to accomplish Hashem's will is the most important goal. Does this apply to our lives as well? Of course it applies to our lives. It's the courage really to be able to know that I find God, not only where I find God, but even where I don't find God. Next question. Ah, maybe now we can understand the Gemara in Megillah Dafyadalad asks why we don't say Halalam Purim. And Reb Nachman says, because reading the Megillah is Halal. What do we say in Halal? In Psalms 113. He 
He lifts up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the destitute from the ashpa, from the garbage, by going into the ashpa. So maybe the Megillah is a good substitute for Halal. That's what your theory is. Okay, very, very geschmack, very geschmack. This also explains, the Gemara says in Dafir Aleph, that when Shmuel wanted to start teaching the Megillah, he began with the Pasuk, Loi ma'astim v'loi ga'altim l'chaloisam. And he said, l'chaloisam is the days of Haman. So this is clearly what the Alter Rebbe is saying. This is a clear source in Gemara that the whole Megillus Esther, according to Shmuel, is based, wow, is based on, uh, on this Pasuk, le'ma'astim v'loi ga'altim. Okay, beautiful, beautiful insight. This explains, somebody quotes here, this explains from Moshe Wolfson, Amunah Sitecha, that the Kohen Gadlan Yim Kippur, it says, would not go in with the gold clothes, right? He would go in with the white linen clothes. But on the outside, he would wear the golden clothes. So he says, why? Because the Zoyar says that the king is ready to come, even to the tannery. Why? Because he loves the kala and the kalas in the tannery. So if that's the case, the king Gadl has to wear gold, big day Zav. I, Zav, reminds me of the Cheta Egel. But sometimes the king Gadl goes into those places because in the Kedosh HaKadoshim he sees the deepest love. So in the Holy of Holies, there's no gold. But on the outside, he could wear gold. Okay, this is a whole discussion in Amun Sitecha on Megillus Esther by Moshe Wolfson. Thank you very much for posting it. Next question. In Shuvah's Harajba, somebody asked the Rajba, Rabbeinu Shleima ben Aderes. It says in Medrash Mishlei that all the holidays will be nullified, but not Purim. But I thought none of the Torah can be nullified. So the Rajba says, what it means is as follows. All the holidays, it's possible that there will be a sin that can nullify the holidays. But Purim, he says, no, nothing will ever, ever be, nothing will ever, ever be nullified. And that's what, the, nothing could nullify it, even sin. And that's what, just like Tishabov happened, as a result of sin. And the Pesach says, The holidays were nullified. The holidays were nullified through Tisha so the other holidays could be nullified through sin. But Yom Purim, the Torah promises, will never be nullified. And that's why it says in Medrash that Yom Kippur also won't be nullified. He says, why? Because Yom Kippur means that God will ultimately atone the Jewish people. Like Rabbi says, even if you don't do tshuva, Yom Kippur... Yom Kippur works. But the other holidays could be nullified by sin. This is what the Rajbah writes. So this person is saying, according to this Maimah, we understand why. Because, according to the Maimah, it shows the tremendous love even if Jews are in a lowly state. And that's what Yom Kippur is also about. The forgiveness. My question, our daughter suffers from social anxiety. A lot of bullying goes, around, goes on around her. It's painful to see her suffering. We feel frustrated and many times disappointed that people make insensitive comments. 
What can we do for my daughter? Yes, it's, it's, it's very, very painful. And you have to really be here for you. You have to be here for her. Just be completely sensitive to her pain. But it's also important to stop the bullying and do whatever you can to, uh, to stop this. I don't know the exact age of your daughter and the situation of your daughter, but I would suggest this to get in contact with somebody who's a real expert on bullying. There are different methods that are used today. You want to find top, top people to give you good advice on how to deal with the situation because it's very, very important that she should be given the wholesomeness that she needs, the support and the wholesomeness and mainly the ability not to internalize the bullying and to know how to respond. I'm sorry, this is tough. The outcome of Purim was positive. What about outcomes that are not positive? What happened with God's presence? God is always present, even in the Hester Ponim. But the point is that Purim showed this. Purim showed that even when everything looked dark and everything looked natural, and even the miracle didn't seem light, it didn't seem divine, it was all Him. He was always there. That's the point. Does Avaidas Hashem serving God have to do with Ibud Iris, with tanning? Yeah, excellent. The Alter Rebbe writes in Torah, er, Parshas Mishpatim, and other places, the word Avaida, Vavadatem, where does it come from? We have in Shabbos one of the 39 categories of labor that are forbidden is Ma'abed, which is basically tanning, taking the skin of an animal and developing it into leather, into a garment. And that's basically what Avaidah Hashem is. Va'avadatam as Hashem alekechem is basically, as the Alter Rebbe says, to make a lekim into Havaya, to take teva and to work it out. We go into the tannery and we have to transform it. And God is there with us. Next question. How do you find God when He is really hidden and you feel the hiddenness so strongly? And what does this say about our present Gullus experience that we aren't ready for God's revelation? How do we show God that we're ready for the revelation? So I think one question answers the other question. When God is hidden, we may not always be able to see his presence. And we have to be able to accept that. The point of the mimer, though, is never doubt his presence. Even if it looks like you're enveloped by dark thoughts, toxic experiences or relationships, deep temptations and trauma that you have to work through. But just know that Hashem is there with you. There's purpose, there's meaning, there's dignity. You're never a victim. And that itself opens you up to a ga'ula consciousness. That itself tells me that I'm not stuck. Even though I may be in the tannery and there are fumes that are not very appealing, but nonetheless, my core is never ever stuck. My core is never never in exile. Because if God is here, God is not ever completely in exile. He's with me in exile, but God remains infinite. And we're always together. So what that means is that I have to work through my stuff, but I should never completely become defined by it. You always have to know, wherever you are, you're not hopeless. And wherever you are, 
It's not the end of the story. Never give up on situations. Never give up on people. Never give up on yourself. Never surrender to the appearance of darkness and feel that that's the entire story. I may not be able to wrap my brain around the light. I may not be able to point fingers and say, there is God, like the Megillah. His name is not mentioned. But I know I have an inner conviction and an inner faith that he's right here with me, that things are going to work out, that there is purpose here. I may not know why it's happening. I may not understand why it's happening. I may not know how it's going to work out. But don't stop fighting. Don't give up. Don't surrender to mediocrity. Don't surrender to despair. You'll work hard and you will transform it. And the darkness will become transformed into light. I'm going to wish everybody a wonderful and beautiful day and a very joyous and happy Purim. May all of us be able to open ourselves up to this truth that we are always one with the Source that we are ambassadors of infinity, we're never lost, we're never alone, we're never neglected, we're never abandoned. Hashem is always with me and with you and with us in every moment, in every situation, in every experience, in every encounter. And may we have the courage to be there like this for others as well. Never to remain stuck in a certain box, but always be able to open ourselves up to the infinite flow of love, even if that means that I really go into spaces and connect to situations that are difficult for me. And there is resistance because I don't belong there. I don't belong there on a superficial level. But if that's where my love is, if that's where I'm going to find somebody who's deeply connected to me, so that ultimately makes it amazingly appealing and amazingly beautiful. It takes courage to be able to learn from this and say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this for me. I'm going to do this for the people around me. I'm going to do this for others. And to be able to really experience that oneness. And when we experience that oneness, then it's not a tannery anymore. Then it's a place of oneness. It's a place of holiness. It's a place of beauty. When we experience the oneness, It's not a tannery anymore. In other words, what makes it a tannery is that we're not experiencing the oneness. When I experience that oneness, so then we don't have to be stuck there anymore. We're not stuck there anymore. Then the relationship has changed. In other words, God comes in to this smelly bursaki, to this smelly tannery, because I'm stuck in that place. The moment I open myself up to who I really am, then I'm not stuck in that place, and we're free. We're free forever. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, I'm, I'm so I'm honored to have your son listening to me as well. She asked me when Reverend Jacobson was going to start singing. You want to sing a song with me? We could sing a song. What's your favorite Purim song? Okay, you don't have to. No pressure, no pressure. You'll sing after you get off. There's an old song on the words and now with this mimer we can understand why it's such a lebedic, why it's a lively song. 
Shava ve yasrim umeya midina Shava ve yasrim umeya midina and I always wondered why the lyrics don't seem to match the lively tune. It was in the days of Achashverosh, the Achashverosh who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Why is that so? Uh, why is that something to celebrate? But maybe now we understand because Vayibemei Achashverosh is really only the external description of the story. The internal description of the story is that it was Vayibimei Achariz Vireisha Shaloi, that in that concealment, the Chosen and the Kala are one. When you know that, it creates joy. I think it's very relevant. I think it's relevant today because, uh, you know, a lot of people, Purim and many people are in isolation and quarantine and there's a lockdown one degree or another. And sometimes one feels that, you know, that joy of Purim, the festivity of Purim, you know, where, where is it? Where has it gone? And what the Maimur is telling you is, don't forget the essential message of the Megillah, the essential message of Purim. You're never, ever, ever alone. You're never, ever, ever abandoned. You're never, ever in a place that you could say, this is hopeless, there's no coming back from here. This is a dead relationship. I'm too messed up. I'm too overwhelmed by anger or envy or trauma or grief. It's too much anxiety, too much pain in my life. No. Even where you are right now, with all of the maizilach, with all the toxicity, Hashem says... I'm there with you right here, right now. I'm here with you. You're my kala. And therefore, even if you say it smells here, God says, I know. But if you're there, I'm there with you. And if I'm there with you, we can always extricate ourselves from the situation. And even before we extricate ourselves from the situation, we can notice that there's purpose, there's meaning, there's love, there's light. We have to have compassion for wherever we are and accept it and know that Hashem is here with me in this journey. And then from this, transformation will happen. Redemption will happen. And even when redemption happens, we'll always celebrate Purim. Because that's the ultimate symbol of the love. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net 
slash donate.